welcome to Rolling with the Punches, the first mental health podcast specifically for painters and decorators. We've got a very special episode for you today. My name is John Mears and I'm joined as always by the wonderful Sharon Norton Marshall. How are you, Sharon? I'm really good, John. Hey, hey, it's good to be here again, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So, absolutely. Yes, it is. And um, thanks to our last episode, which went down uh, very well, which I was mm. very pleased with. Uh, we had a, quite a, a lot of response from it, but one that uh, really piqued my interest was my favourite American decorator that I like to take the piss out of. Uh, mm-hmm. And that is Russell. Russell, how are you, my friend? I'm hey, doing well. Hi, John. Hi, Sharon. Hey. Russell, thanks, thanks for having for me. Us. Yeah, thanks no, thank me. you very much. Um, so to give uh, all the listeners a little bit of background, uh, Russell got in touch after the last uh, podcast and gave me a little bit of uh, of his history that I didn't know, which involves uh, addiction uh, with alcohol. And this is something that myself and, and Sharon see a lot. It's something that I've struggled with in the past uh, and it's something that comes up in the forums a lot decorators I know it's the old adage that decorators are all drunks and drink too much um, mm. but but it's you know it's a serious issue and we see it a lot in the forums particularly on Facebook don't we Sharon yeah. um, people really struggling with it don't know where to go with it don't know what to do with it so look I don't want to um, uh, talk over anyone here really I want to start off with with Russell if you can um, give us a little bit of a, an intro on who you are and your business, because obviously you're a decorator, and then and then just run us through your story so that everyone can understand yeah. where you've come from. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, you know, I th- I'm not sure if the same wives' tale exists here in the UK. In the States, we had this uh, adage amongst the, the old guard of decorators that um, they had to drink beer because it neutralized some of the spirits in the solvented paints. Um, and so that was sort of the um, excuse that many of gave is that it was mandatory. It was a um, chemical neutralization process. Yeah, so. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, again, thanks for having me. My business is Flawless Finish, um, more than just painting and decorating. Um, I've been in the business now professionally for eight nine years and uh, the last five of that's been here in the uk so i ran the business in the states um, and then i've uh, had to completely dismantle it because really nothing transfers except for me um all the power tools wouldn't and everything else was just too cumbersome so yeah that was a if, if starting up a brand new business wasn't scary enough uh shutting it down when it was successful to go start up again yeah <laughs> was, that's really was, brave isn't it yeah um, uh, but luckily my wife is uh absolutely amazing woman so in anticipation of me coming she was already sort of putting the word out and arranging jobs and things um so i was able to kind of walk into at least a bit of work um so it was a, a little less terrifying than the first time around that new, well, I've never met you, Russell. You've already said the most magical thing is that your wife is the most amazing woman. You know, I mean, that's that makes you a top bloke already, doesn't it? So, <laughs> and she's not even standing behind me at the moment. Yeah, so, she yeah. Just <laughs> <really> <laughs> She'll be listening. She knows that I love her already. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so flawless finish was was actually born in the states, and and it's kind of 
really ties into to my recovery. It was um, it, it was born out of my uh, recovery from um, addiction. And so the name of the company as well kind of ties into, um, you know, a lot of my recovery was was intimately linked with my spirituality. Um, and I think that's a key component for for anybody's um, recovery. Um, and I don't even need to specify my brand because I don't think the the brand is, is important. I think that um, finding whatever spirituality someone needs to find, um, that's probably the biggest component of, of not doing it by oneself. But um, the idea of the flawless finish is that, you know, in my spiritual beliefs, um, all the mistakes that are made along the way in this life are going to be cleansed and erased. And um, ultimately, in the end, when I join my higher power, uh, it'll be a flawless finish. Um, it's it'll be you know his victory and whatnot. And so that was kind of brought down. Can I ask Russell what is you know for the purpose we we speak about spirituality, don't we? Sometimes John. And I sometimes pose a question to John, but for the guys out there listening, uh, I am a very, I consider myself to be a very spiritual person, but what does that mean to you? Because I love it when men say this, but what is that specifically to you, maybe, or what do you think about spirituality within yourself so that other people can understand what it means? Because, you know, obviously over here, we're not so receptive to spirituality and being open about that belief or those beliefs. So what does that actually mean to you? I don't know is the easiest way to put it. I've never been able to. I know. love I that answer. It, it, it's it's yeah. not that easy to define, and I'm kind of glad that it isn't because mm. if it was if it was just right on the tip of my tongue, I don't know that it would be deep enough. So, um, it's knowing that there is a spiritual power in existence that's greater than I am. Um, you know. I come from a Christian background. My higher power is Jesus Christ. Um, but like I said, I, I'm not going to push that on anybody. But that God um, is the creator. And so I, I do find that to be an important part of the spiritual. Whatever this spiritual entity that you want to try to connect with, it needs to be big. It needs to be yeah. really big. And so um, something that you feel is bigger than yourself that maybe sometimes in those times of doubt that you can maybe speak through yourself and get uh, get an inner guidance from what you believe is a greater sense of yourself, yeah? Absolutely. I'm sounding like April already. <laughs> I, I've, I've had some absolutely insane um, experiences, which maybe is like a, a different podcast. <laughs> it's, Amazing. I've had some really powerful spiritual experiences where... <clears throat> miraculous things have happened and to be honest um my recovery from addiction is is just too intimately linked with that i had to have a surrendering moment um where i gave up i quite literally had to to give up and it was um there was a a moment i woke up in a hospital um and I did kind of a systems check. Can I wiggle my fingers? Can I wiggle my toes? That type of thing. And kind of, uh, I was like, all right, I'm alive. I'm 
not paralyzed. I don't feel very good, but I started to have a little look around and I couldn't move my leg. And I went to look at why, and it was because my leg was shackled to the hospital bed. Mm-hmm. And uh, the next thing I saw was just past my feet were, you know, a couple of um, police officers waiting for me to wake up. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really know what had happened and why I was there and whatnot, but I had this feeling and it wasn't suicidal. I didn't want to end my life. I just didn't want to be alive anymore. Mm-hmm. I I was so broken that I just didn't want to go on and I didn't and what it ended up meeting was I didn't want to go on the way I was going on I couldn't have more of the same but in that moment it was just so coming out of a I mean I was probably still drunk to be honest there was enough alcohol in my system the night before so it's just a, a really hazy horrible sick moment where I gave up um, and I gave up on being in control, um, being too clever, being whatever. And I, and, and I just reached out spiritually. I didn't say anything out loud. It wasn't verbal. There was no like lightning bolts in the room. There was no voice of rumbling from above. It was just a moment where I just said, I'm done. I need you to, I need, I need you to help. I need you to come take over. And, um, because I can look at the whole movie since from that moment to the present, I can look back and see the guidance. I can see where the interjection happened. I can see that it was, um, that I did receive a lot of help in the journey from that moment of conceding to getting through what was a pretty lengthy recovery process. I mean, I did a, a full year inpatient um, recovery program Part of it was um, legally solidified, (laughs) but um, there was the option, so I didn't have to do it. So again, it was, and again, this is one of those spiritual moments is where there was absolutely a choice. I didn't have to go and do this recovery thing. I could have just done a normal, um, normal punishment, we'll say, done some time. and so, but I think that the choice was a huge element of it, is that uh, it wasn't pushed upon me. And I think that's the tough thing with, you know, people that have families that care and want to do an intervention and this and that, and that's wonderful. But the saddest part about addiction, from my perspective, is you can't make somebody get it. You can't make somebody change. Um, there's got to come a moment where they want it for themselves and um i think that's the hardest part about loving people who are stuck in addiction is that it seems like everybody else can see it and until that until that addict has had enough pain and suffering generally speaking seems to be the formula there's a few lucky people that manage to get the wake-up call sooner but i think it takes a lot of a lot of destruction a lot of chaos for a lot of addicts before they can become so desperate that they have to reach outside of themselves and ask for help. And I think that's probably the most critical moment. From there, can it still go wrong? Can you have relapses? Of course, but I think once you finally get to a point of brokenness that enables you to say, I can't, 
I can't do this. I can't do it by myself and I can't go on the way I'm going on. Um, the spirit, the spiritual realm has a way of when you, when you remove the importance of yourself and ask for the help, it, it will come. Mm. I've got so many questions. How about you, John? Yeah, How much can I go first? Yeah. Yes, you can. <laughs> <laughs> you have to say that because otherwise you won't get a word of it, right? Yeah. <laughs> Russell, yeah, I, I, um, I deliberately didn't want to talk too much to you about this before this podcast because I wanted to have that this sort of moment where I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> <laughs> this is amazing. Like uh, what you've been through. Tell me, um, what was it like? What were the, I don't know, the weeks, months, years leading up to that moment like? What was what was your drinking like? What was a typical week like? How was your family life? How were now you can look back at it, like you say, you can you can see when you were in the moment, you obviously didn't realize there's a problem here. Or maybe you did, mm. but you didn't see the full extent of it. But but what were those habits like what were if you look back at it now what were those early warning signs that you were heading in a real wrong direction i will specifically answer that in probably about 60 seconds because if i don't give you a 60 second version of me from 16 to 30 something then it won't mean anything so i started drinking uh and smoking and smoking marijuana at such 15 16 years old and i wasn't excellent socialite raging party animal people loved me i had a great time all the time um and that just didn't stop <laughs> and so by the time i was 21 i got my first drunk driving um did a little time in jail for that one because i didn't want to jump through the, the the hoops got some help um and, and as a part of that I did do some recovery and got into Alcoholics Anonymous, did some AA, and I spent, I want to say the better part of two years sober, and it was amazing. My life rapidly changed. I got back into college and met a great girl and had a wonderful relationship and started to have some job success, and, and then I was studying French in school and college, and we were going to have a, a trip to Europe, a school trip. And by now I'm like 23, 24 maybe. And so I just, I started convincing myself, like I can't go to France and not drink French wine. <laughs> Absolutely not. And then I said, well, you know, all of those problems I had were, those were just because I was young and stupid and reckless. And I, I didn't, I'm not really an alcoholic, I just, I just never exercised any self-control. So, so I, you know, I said, I'll try it. I'll give it a go. And if, and if I can just responsibly drink as an adult, well then, hey, no problem. So I did. And I proved it to myself. I'd go out and have one glass of wine with my, with my lady on a, on a dinner out, and that would be it. Sit at home, watch some football, have a couple beers, that would be it go over to the boys house have three four five beers not drive home that'd be it and i just got to this point where i'm like oh i'm fine I, I, I was absolutely right i was just young and dumb young and crazy 
but it just kept creeping. And the analogy I always use is called moving the fences. And what it means is that you self, oops, you put boundaries on yourself. I'm only going to have one, only going to have a couple. If I have more than two, I won't drive. And then what happens is you move the fences, you move the boundaries. When that's comfortable and successful, it's like, all right, well, and what can happen when an addict will do is they won't stop moving the boundaries. They won't stop moving the fences. And so the old lifestyle, it wasn't overnight. It wasn't a week. It wasn't a month, but it just got a little bit worse, a little bit worse. And then I went off to Europe and I partied and I went to France and drank red wine and I went to Amsterdam and drank and did other Amsterdam things. And I just, and I came back and I was like, well, I, I do love partying. So I just started making a, a social habit of it. Only do it on the weekends, maybe. And it just kept going and going until the next thing, it, it's every day. I, 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 it, there was no moment where you could say, oh, it was right there. It just kept gradually becoming more and more and more and two days a week, three days a week, five days a week, every day. So to answer your question, I was at the point where I was drinking every single day. I would get home from work um, and I was drinking alone at home. I'd come home and I, if I didn't already have it in the fridge, I'd stop on the way home from work and pick it up. And it was, it was basically the same. It was a bottle of vodka in the freezer and a fridge full of the highest alcohol content beer I could get. And I would walk in the door, crack a beer, pour a shot, drink some beer, do the shot, chase it with the beer, finish the beer, pour another shot, grab another beer, do the shot, take that beer, go sit down by the TV, play video games, watch TV, whatever. And then I'd just spend the rest of the night just drinking until I was passed out drunk. Wake up in the morning, feel like shit. Uh, maybe hit McDonald's, get some Grease Springs peace, have that kind of a good breakfast, go to work, probably stinking. I mean, I thought I was fine. I'd shower and shave and brush my teeth, but retrospect i probably still smelled like a drunk i don't know but uh but it was functional work all day i was working in the golf business then uh, in sales relatively successful at it i mean i wasn't a prodigy but i wasn't failing at it did it fine we get to the point where in the mornings i'd be just pleading with myself today just today you're not gonna come home and drink you're not gonna quit drinking it's just gonna take one day off and by the time i get done with work I couldn't keep my promise to myself. I I was so addicted. I I was desperate to stop. I was desperate to stop for a day. And I I I've, I don't know how to describe it to someone who hasn't ever had an addiction. I couldn't. I couldn't stop myself. I actually had to. And I don't know. It doesn't make sense. Um, but it had gone past the place where it was a choice. You know, a lot of times people look at addicts and they say, well, they chose to be that way. Maybe in the beginning stages. But it, it gets to the point where the choice is taken away from you. And so, yeah, I was desperate. And I didn't have a specific sabotage, but I was kind of desperate for something to happen. This is before spirituality. I was just rogue, just living for me. Um, I had zero spirituality, um, and, uh, but there was something inside me, um, but little shredder tatter of a soul I had left that was probably pleading with me and saying, 
And uh, and so yeah, some bad stuff happened, but the bad stuff happened because I needed an intervention, um, and not a soft one, not like a my family rallied around and wagged some fingers and said you shouldn't do this. I needed an aggressive, near life-ending type of a, a experience, and um, yeah. It, that got my attention to the place where I had to have a spiritual cry out, or I had to give up. I was compelled to just thank you for this amazingly vulnerable share, Russell, because I think a lot of people out there are going to relate to this and would definitely not be able to put themselves openly as you have now. So um, I was actually also compelled to look at what the uh, uh, definition by, by Oxford's dictionary is an, a, an enthusiastic devotee of a specified thing or activity is what they say, a devotee. And my burning question, I'm sorry to kind of wave and just, you know, gesticulate just desperately to ask this question, that as in your, what was it that compelled you to, what were you needing, what were you chasing, what were you feeling, what, what did you feel was the need that you felt was satisfied by alcohol? You know, was it like a numbing out? Or how would you describe it? What was what was driving that need? It began for me. I, I think that it's quite possible that I was always an alcoholic. I, I don't necessarily think that I sort of became one. Um, it started when I was 14, 15. I was raised in a really Christian church. And I was a good little Christian boy. I went mm -hmm. to the youth groups, did all the activities. And in, in the branch of Christianity we were in, they had a confirmation happened at like 13 or 14. And in and, and that church, they basically said, once you were confirmed, you were an adult member of the church. And I mm -hmm. said, all right, I went through it, did it. Everyone was real happy and proud of me and my family. And I said, guess what, folks? As an adult member of the church, my first official decision is I'm not going to church anymore. <laughs> and I quit. I just quit. And almost immediately, my number one priority became I wanted to be cool. I wanted to be popular. And um, I started smoking cigarettes because the cool kids smoke cigarettes. They went at no, that yeah, the bridge after school. It was peer pressure and it was your surroundings. and. Yes, but I, it wasn't people pressuring me. I was pressuring myself to go you find. You because you, would you say that your upbringing was, was quite confined so you were kind of thirsty to find out what other people might be experiencing i don't know i had an absolutely amazing childhood i really did um i mean my real dad peaced out when i was really little but my stepdad stepped in when i was so young that he's always just been dad so i mean i grew up with two parents i grew up in a you know we, we weren't like rich or wealthy but we were well enough i mean i two working parents. My dad was a, an attorney and my mom was a teacher. I mean, we were comfortable, lived in a nice community, no crime. There was nothing wrong. Um, I don't know why this insane desire to be popular and well-liked. And, and, and I mean, it wasn't just enough to have two or three good friends. I wanted everybody to like me. And so I became a clown. Uh, I would get attention any way I could through making fun of myself, by making a spectacle. What I found when um, my mom being a teacher, a lot of these kids had my mom. And so I wasn't, I didn't have my own identity. I wasn't Russell. I was 
Mrs. So-and-so's son. And so, like, I'd be hanging out at the bridge smoking a fag, and they'd be like, oh, no way. It's Mrs. So-and-so's son. And I'd be like, yeah, and the good boy smokes. And, and it was so cool. And then it just kept, it never stopped. It became, you know, once I got into a party scene, I was just so well-liked because I was just a crazy goofball, and I was funny, and I would I would take any dare, and I was, you know, Nobody wanted to be, everybody wanted to be close to me, not, just not too close to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sort of getting vision of Jim Morrison, you know, when he was at the height of his cool like, It's amazing, Terry. So, most of my addiction was really just chasing good times until it got to the point where I couldn't pick and choose anymore of when I was having a good time. Um, I'm not saying it wasn't a problem before then. It caused problems in my life. I would get in trouble or, you know, no call, no show at work or something because I couldn't get out of bed or, I mean, there was problems. But it wasn't a life, a daily life controlling problem until it got quite advanced. Mm. Um, And I don't know how to describe, like, once you... I, I don't know where the threshold is. I don't know. It wasn't one day I stepped over a threshold. It's just one day I looked back and went, oh, shit, the threshold is a long way away. That's that's the, the one day it was way too late. By the time the one day realization comes, it wasn't like I could take one baby step back and just sit on the safe side. Was um, that because you missed out on something or that something didn't come to you, to you easily or that you someone made um, you something or? I just, I don't know. I felt I was less inhibited, of course. And so it allowed me to say outrageous things that were funny. And I mean, we were just so less woke back then that <laughs> you could say offensive things. They were still funny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, or just do crazy stuff. And it was funny. And so people just liked being around me because I was entertainment. Like I said, I mean, I didn't have a lot of, per se, excellent friends. But I had a lot of friends because everybody wanted to see what I was going to do next, see what I was going to say. Did and you I say loved you liked the attention. At that time, or was that something you weren't really aware of, whether you did or you didn't? I don't think I was aware of the fact that I was trying to compensate for something like that. I don't think that if you would have asked me back then, like, you know, do you have? Um, some kind of a self-esteem issue. I've been like, no, I've got like all the self-esteem I can handle. I, I was arrogant, mm. cocky, but I thought it was, I thought it was, you know, just self-confidence. Um, I think, on a deep retrospective, yeah, I was probably. I mean, you could latch it onto it, whatever. You could probably say, oh, maybe it was abandonment issues from when my biological father left when I was three or four or something. Maybe I, I don't ever really sat and regressed to the psychoanalyst about it before i'm certainly not going to blame him for it um at this point in my life I, you know i'm going to take responsibility for it okay. i do know that you know it just made social interactions easy um and, and i mean i don't know how far you want to go down this little bunny hole but i'll tell you another big element of it was um also being well liked by the ladies and the social lubricant of just being able, I was not very confident with women, so it helped me to be able to 
begin conversations and be funny and and my god you know when i found out that a girl might laugh at me because she thought i was funny it was like oh i mean it just made me feel so special and and it you know it went further than that as well i mean um in terms of advanced amorous activities and things it's just you know i don't don't know how naughty we want to get today but it certainly my subject of limits it certainly made all of those things easier to um to, to get involved with because the inhibitions were gone. You know, there mm-hmm. was no sober. I would have been shy um, and I would have been polite and I would have been worried that I might offend. And so it would be easier to say nothing than to take a chance. Um, drunk, I, I didn't care. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, so I, I when I drink, and I don't know if you found it similar. There's almost like, well, for me, it's Johnny Mears. He's the sober, serious, serious one. And then there's Johnny Beers. Johnny Beers, has got, <laughs> Johnny Beers has got loads of mates. Johnny Beers can chat to women, and and, and exactly the same. There's like, it's almost like I separate it as like two different people, and and especially with yeah, talking to women and stuff like that. It's Jack like, yeah, yeah. It's like sober me. Not a chance. And I I found I spent a lot of time, you know, when you're at that sort of like three, four beers in and you're like still very with it, but you've just you've lost the inhibitions. You just think you're smooth. You're cool. Everything you say is fucking hilarious. <laughs> uh, and you're just like and I, I, I almost looked at that as like four pint Johnny. <laughs> he's the fucking guy he's the man i wish i could be him all the time he's so confident he's so funny he's the, whether or not i actually was i probably wasn't half as funny as i thought i was but but the, it was almost like i became this separate person did you ever do you find that that, that, that there was two russells actually makes sense it's like a confidence cloak isn't it yeah you can maintain that level of being the four beerness yeah well and like john said though what's brilliant is there's your self-perception at four beers mm. and there's everyone else's perception. <laughs> and and the great part about four beers is in your self-perception, I don't care what anyone else's perception is. <laughs> so it doesn't matter to me what the outside looking in is at. I'm happy with the inside looking out. And yeah, that, that, that sweet spot. And you're like, Oh, if I could just, you know, what, what's the right recipe? Like if I have one an hour, is it one yeah. and a half an hour? Like, yeah, you know? that's what I was just thinking. I can imagine that. And I think you've uh, struck on something which is very important for people listening. And obviously, you know, I like to kind of make sure I'm, I'm constantly feeding my brain as far as mental health is concerned is about the self-perception. You know, really what we perceive of ourselves as sober, we've obviously thought, oh, I'm a really, I'm a really dull person. Mm. So do I need to make myself more interesting to myself by drinking? Or anything, whatever usage it is, really, isn't it? There's this guy, Steve Harvey, that um, from the States. Um, black guy mustache. Black guy, yeah, he did the family feud yeah. show or whatever. Yes, yeah, yeah. But he had this, he was asked this question. He did a. He did another show where people were allowed to come to him with things. And he said, they asked him about, you know, why does money make people assholes? And he said, mm-hmm. money doesn't make people assholes. No. He said, money will take whatever you've got on the inside and it will amplify it. 
So if you're a wonderful, kind, giving, sharing person on the inside, and then all of a sudden you get a lot of money, you'll just be a more kind, more loving, more giving, more sharing person. But if you're inside a miserable prick and you get a bunch of money, you're just going to be a bigger, more miserable prick. You're just going to be a bigger asshole. And so I think that it's kind of like that and that it just amplifies whatever you've, you've, got inside by taking the inhibitions off so you know my desire is i want to be good time gary and have some funny jokes and stuff by you know having a few it just takes the shackles off a bed and, and allows more of this protected self this this i don't know if i show this real me to other people if they'll like this real me so i'm going to protect this real me and in some cases, you probably, I, I know I should, there's parts of the real me that should be, you know, protected. Really, I'm doing everyone else a favor. I'm not protecting me <laughs> from them. I'm protecting them from me. But, um, but yeah, the more social lubricant you add, the less you can just sort of let this real me out. And if the real me has got some not so pleasant parts, those are going to come on too, which is why you get happy drunks, mm. you know, that just end up, you know, passing out in a corner and, and pissing mm-hmm. themselves or whatever. And that's why you get <laughs> guys that uh, uh, pound a bunch of whiskey and want to go find a fight. <laughs> it's, it's, it was, it was inside. I believe it was inside the whole time. It's just um, yeah. someone unlocks the cell door. Talking of the, the, like, the sweet spot, as we said, the sort of three, four, five drinks, wherever that sweet spot is, I, I was so convinced that when I'd had that many drinks, that that was the best version of me. That because uh, a, a lot of the other reasons I drank was um, with my anxiety, uh, and I remember going to the doctor, actually going to the doctor and just saying, "Doctor, if you could give me a pill that makes me feel like I do after three or four pints, that's it. That would be the best version of me. Job done. See you later." And he was just like. I'm sorry, mate. That's just not how it works. <laughs> I was like, okay. Um, I want to talk about moving the fences. Is is a that's a great little term there. I really like that. Yeah. I, I see that a lot. To my drinking, I I, I move the fences a lot. Uh, at the moment, I'm on a. Um, we have the kids uh, every other weekend, so it's like right every other weekend we've got the kids. My new challenge is don't drink on those weekends just drink on the other ones and I'll do that for a bit and then it slips back to uh, we'll just drink on both weekends it'll be fine but don't drink quite as much I'll only have one bottle of wine when the kids are here ah uh, do you know what we're out let's have two bottles of wine uh, it'll be and then six months down the line like you say it's step 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 oh shit where are we now um, so that was quite scary when you started <laughs> talking about that in fairness um, but something Do we actually even realize though john when we're moving the fences because it's such a great analogy isn't it yeah it's because i think because it's so so slow and and like you say it's you sort of you get away with it don't you you're like yeah you have one bottle of wine you wake up in the morning and think oh, i'm mm. all right no issues i might do one bottle and a couple of glasses tomorrow get away with it especially if there are two of you so yeah. say so one person might if you've got two of the same kind of wines and they're going to the fridge and like that other person might not tell you that they've opened a fresh one. Yeah. And then, oh, I'll just refill your glass. We may as well finish the bottle. Um, yeah. Something that Sometimes something... I haven't even known there's been a change over. I'm, like, I'm still thinking, how come I've still got a glass being filled up? 
<laughs> Something I always struggle with, and I, I think you'll very quickly relate to this because you were party Russell. Um, I have a lot of friends who essentially, uh, I probably know, I've got a group of friends that I might have known for 10, 15 years now, but I've only ever really been out with them drinking. They're just drinking friends. I won't go to them with like personal problems or something, but I might have 10, 15, 20 mates, the kind of guys that you're on their stag do, uh, but you only really know the drunk version of each other. Um, and I, I, alcohol in our culture is, is very intertwined. It's that, that is a real struggle for me. If I think, do you know what? I don't want to drink. Starting tomorrow, I'm not going to drink anymore. I think there's big sacrifices there, isn't there? I mean, I'm guessing you'd lost a lot of friends and there, uh, and there were a lot of things that you just stopped doing because in fairness, when I look at, I look at some of my drinking friends, I don't think I'd want to hang around with them for six hours a night on, if I was drinking water, <laughs> especially if they're yeah. drinking because you, you know, realize you don't actually like them very much at all. <laughs> I like them, but drunk version of them paired up with sober boring serious johnny mears he's gonna be i'm gonna be bored out of my tits <laughs> i'm gonna be like what am i doing here so I mean, how how did you move through that and i guess there are a lot of social situations in in our world where it's just like oh you'll have a drink won't you uh what are you doing those and this is very much so with the case of girls as well if, if there are any girls that are listening out there and in fact sometimes more so they think, oh, you're gonna. You're so boring. You know, you got to have. There's, a, there's actually a lot of pressure. I know. I've been out with girls that have said, "What do you mean you're not drink, drinking? Oh, you've got to have one. I just have one. Yeah, just one." And I'm like, "Well, what's the point of having one?" And never know? in the history. <laughs> never in the history yeah. of alcohol has anyone I've, had yeah. one. I've never wanted one. No. <laughs> That's the saying, isn't it? Isn't it? One's too many, and a hundred's not enough, or something like that. I don't yeah. Know. <laughs> um. It, it it was kind of two stages for me. So. Um, I had a very radical recovery in the sense that um, I had the opportunity by doing a one-year inpatient program that I could remove myself totally um, from the real world for a year and, and just getting time, just an accumulation of days really was huge. So I think that while everyone isn't going to have that luxury, the theme from it is you you do have to create a space. You, you've got to push stuff away a bit and give yourself a little room. And yeah, originally I just didn't go any place where people were drinking. I didn't go to bars. I mean, literally I'd only go to a restaurant if I was going to eat food. Um, I wouldn't go to someone's house party if everyone was going to be drinking. I mean, I would go to Thanksgiving dinner or something with my family and have a good time with some close people. But um, and a lot of the people that were the closest to me were sensitive as well. Uh, would want to, you know, sometimes offer to not drink around me or whatever. So it, it was just it was a lot of time and space and getting OK with me being me, getting to be OK with the person that I wasn't OK with. The person that I was intentionally having drinks to not be. <laughs> I had to be okay with that person. Yeah. I think that's the hardest, scariest part is all of a sudden you, you, you have to deal with yourself. You have to face yourself when you're sober and, and, and you spend days and days and weeks and months and, and there's no place to hide anymore. And so, and presumably the people around you, like you say, there's a lot of support, which is lovely, 
but you don't want those pitying glances, do you? But oh, you know, we better not mention those sort of things around Russell, or you know, you yeah. know, you think we should sort of you know set fire, you know, to the Christmas pudding with it? Oh no, no, we don't. Want to, oh no, better take make sure we remove everything from the house, otherwise it's going to be like you know. <laughs> I don't know, just hiding it in the uh, airing cupboard or something. Yeah. <laughs> I found eventually that the stage two part of it is, is you do still have to live in the real world. You can't just isolate yourself for forever as an no, addict of any kind. You, you, you're, you still got to interact and deal. It's isn't it? Yeah. So what I eventually found was that I would go out with mates and I'd go out with drinking mates. I designated drive for them. Mm. But the, the key for me was was very simple. If we were going to go throw darts, I'll go with you and I'll go play darts. If we're going to go shoot some pool, sure, I'll go with you and we'll shoot some pool. But if you're just going to go sit at the rail and wall a bail, I'm not going. Call me when you're done. I'll come pick you up and give you a ride home. But there had to be a reason to be there other than drinking. If you want to go out for a meal and you want to have a few beers, fine. Let's go have a burger. But I just, and it's like that now. Like I, if I, I'm not just going to go up to the local just to see people's faces and drink diet coke. Like I don't, mm. I'm not interested. It was like a purpose. Like when you're engaged in something like a purposeful activity, you know that's not. Yeah, it's almost sort of more worthwhile. It's very oh, simple. It's very simple, but I, I like that as a very good way of doing it. Um, and it, it makes me realise how often in in my life we essentially go out just to drink. We don't have any other mm -hmm. purpose, you know, darts, pool, whatever it might be. We go out just to drink. And especially if you're with like a large group of friends that maybe you don't know that well. Isn't it just ridiculous how you basically just sit there and just nail the first three or four drinks because essentially you're just staring at each other, not really knowing yes. what to say. And then bang, <laughs> four or five drinks in, and you're all best mates, and you've got more than you could ever talk about. <laughs> um, okay, I want to ask if you were to look back at it now and you could give yourself the intervention that you needed at an earlier stage to, you know, not shackled to a hospital bed um where would it be would it be okay you're you're drinking too much on weekends now or oh shit you know you've only got a personality if you're drunk is it you're drinking every day it's starting to affect other parts of your life at what point would you go bang that's where you need to cut in and, and start realizing this is going to become something that is the one of the toughest questions i've ever been asked um because I'm not sure there's any point that I could cut in where I would have listened to myself. Mm. Um, certainly, I couldn't go back to the beginning and say, don't ever start, because I mean, teenage Russell would never listen, not even to himself. <laughs> I mean, it just not happened. Um, the only window of opportunity, I think, would have been um, the previous time I'd gotten sober in that, in that two years and go back and see sober Russell. And when he started thinking, Ah, you weren't actually an addict. You just were young and dumb. So grab hold of that one and say, no, 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 no trust me. <laughs> you are. Uh, yeah. Because um, that, I think, would have been the only, it was, you know, I think the only place in my life where I could have heard sense 
was uh, when I was sober. And I think that's probably speaks to the, the real major challenge with addiction. It's hard to speak sense to somebody who's in the depths of their addiction. Do you worry that there's going to be another time in your life? I don't know. It might be when you retire or something like that. And you think, do you know what? I don't have to get up for work anymore. Why not have a glass of wine with dinner? No. Um, and I say that with conviction because, well, it's a couple of things. Because I've played the game a couple of times, mm-hmm. recovery and, and then go back and whatnot, um, I know. I, I know with certainty that if I were to ever even have so much as have just one, that it would be it would be fine john it would be fine i would enjoy the first year of retirement would be great and the second year of retirement would start to get a bit sloppy and i would die a miserable drunk because i would move the fences that's part of me being an addict that is never going to be cured or never going to go away and i don't trust myself with willpower um i'm not saying question like that Having gone through all of that rehab, that would have been my kind of burning question is the why, the drive. That's what we're all kind of, you know, I mean, certainly people listening who maybe want to, you know, get rid of that or haven't got had that defining moment or spiritual intervention or their own personal intervention moment. You know, it's like, well, what's, how do you get rid of that drive? How, I understand that, you know, you can't have one because mm. it may lead to more, but it's the why. That's my thing. Is like why? I'm not sure I understand why. Why? Why? What? The drive to have it in the first place. You know, that's going to have one more. You say with absolute certainty. You know, like if you had one, Mm. eventually down the line that would end up being more. Because I I don't know. I know myself because I've done it, and I know myself, and I and I know that. I guess because I've tried it, I've tried all my excuses on. I find it so. In, this is why I'm, I'm so intrigued by that. Um, yeah, and it's. To the I love point, your certainty. Well, and here's the thing. I'm not willing to find out if I'm wrong. Oh, I love that. Oh my <laughs> God, that's an amen moment. I love that. Because there is a part of the of just a logical, rational mind where I could say, maybe you're right. Maybe I've been through enough where I could have willpower and be responsible and yeah. all these other but things. This is boundaries, isn't it? I'm You're terrified. On yourself, yeah. I'm terrified of Amazing. what might happen because I've seen how bad it gets. And I I refuse to go back to those places. And so I think that's why I say part of it is when you have a really, really bad, really low rock bottom, it at least gives you a solid foundation to move up from. And I think the difficulty with addictions that are highly functional that don't have these real catastrophic rock bottoms is it's it, it, there's nothing really solid to build your recovery up from and so you get to a point where you can start going eh, maybe i'm okay so it has to get to the point where there's a choice a conscious choice where I you just so. draw a boundary no more and that is it whatever happens I think that the idea for a person to just sort of be sick and tired of, you know, the scene, I think is going to be a, a, a bigger, I think that's a bigger challenge for recovery than mm-hmm. a catastrophe. Because you got to somehow start to deal with 
those nagging questions in your mind about uncertainty. Am I an addict? Am I not? Was I just mm -hmm. going through a rough spell or do I actually have a problem? Am I better now? Um, and I, I can tell you this, the more time I spend sober, the, the better I know myself. Um, and so again, it's about that time and space. I mean, there, there's people that relapse after decades of sobriety. I'm not saying it couldn't happen to me. I'm not going to be arrogant with my sobriety either. But at the same time, I just, I remind myself of how bad it was. Not, not how bad it might be or could be in the future. I remind myself of how bad it was. Yeah, the bench, yeah. And I lost my family over it. You know, I, I ended up separated from my wife and my children um for years um it took me to some pretty miserable places yeah um had teeth knocked out in bar fights I had to go to jail I had to wake up not knowing where I am how I got there uh I mean let's if we're gonna put it all out there, I mean, yeah, piss, how much work? Piss, yeah, piss like literally, amazing. Literally, pissing myself drunk, um, and I, I, I'm just I'm at a point where I'm not gonna have any of that back, and I've convinced myself that that's all. I'll, that's all I'll get back. Eventually, I know for a fact I could go drink successfully for a weekend, or a couple of weeks, a couple of months, probably a couple of years. I'm probably old enough and smart enough and wise enough and all of these enoughs to to stretch it out. But the fences are going to I'm going to keep going a bit more. How much more do you need? Just a little bit. Yeah. I love that, you know, just that not willing to do it. Yeah, I love that. Love that. The difficult thing for me and I think for a lot of people who might systematically try and go without alcohol or it's it's almost like a like a scaled up version of when you wake up in the morning absolutely hanging out your ass and you go oh i'm never drinking again and you don't for a little bit but then your brain forgets about all the fucking shit and it starts going you miss that feeling you miss the buzz of alcohol you just think just drink a little bit less and it'll be fine and you'll get all the good stuff and none of the crap do you ever miss it do you still get that do you ever miss the the drinking you know what I tell people? I tell people I'm retired. Oh, I love it. Um, in American football, typically the quarterback is the glory boy on the field, and a really elite quarterback struggles to retire. They just, mm. you know, how many? Take Tom Brady. How many Super Bowls? I was going to say Tom Brady's just one. Yeah, and then he gets it. <laughs> how many more do you really want? I, I just, <laughs> And uh, and there was this one Brett Favre, and he played till he was like I don't know, a hundred, and he was an old geezer. It was sad. It was sad watching him go because he peaked. He hit his prime. He peaked, and then it just was a nice slow, miserable downhill. And then he, he's sitting there going, "Oh, it's really sad." Had he just quit, retired, not quit, but retired at his peak, everybody would have been like, "We remembered him as the greatest and all this stuff." So I, I suppose I sort of look at it like that, is that I've had a very full life 
of drinking experience. <laughs> I have. This is so I have, romantic. I love it. I have. I have done enough, and, and I've hit the peak. And um, that's a very healthy way to look at it as well, isn't it? Is there things that I never experienced? Yeah. Did I ever get to Ibiza? No, I missed Ibiza. I never got to go. Did I ever get to go to Mardi Gras in New Orleans? No, I missed that one. There's a lot of ones I didn't miss. I promise. <laughs> There's more that I didn't miss than the ones that I did. But it can be replaced by something else, I guess. You're looking at what you're replacing it with, aren't you? So looking at it from a from abundance rather than there's a, a, a spiritual leader in the in the states the author and he said uh once you've had filet mignon you, you don't want hot dogs anymore <laughs> mm. um which is kind of not true in like the real terms because i'm having hot dogs for dinner tonight but um mm. the principle is that is that yeah once you can latch into something that's that's better or, or greater or finer than it does help to lessen the desire. So I mean, there's certainly an element of recovery that is the the joke is always that you replace one addiction with another one. And it's I say a joke. I mean it, it happens a lot. So it's not exactly always funny. But if if it's a healthy habit, a healthy addiction, then uh, I suppose you know all things in moderation. Uh, but it is about finding spending some time with yourself getting to know yourself the reels that you trying some new things um and, and getting involved in new things um service is a great way for addicts to recover because there's something spiritual about giving your more than anything you can give your time I it's, agree easy. That it's easy to give it's easy to get money. I mean, even if you don't have it, it's easy to get money. Um, but it's hard Actual to get time. service, yeah, from a wholehearted place is is the reason we are here, a lot of people believe. And I, I actually take that approach with my decorating, you know, especially if I'm having a hard day. It's literally, you know, giving purpose to somebody and creating something, from, which is a solution. You're giving a solution to that to that person, which brings a sense of meaning to your decorating which ultimately makes for a better job and a better existence for us during the process I think. I think with that it's it becomes every every single human being gets to define themselves whether they know it or not I mean they get the opportunity to do that so addiction tends to define us and allows other people to define us and as an addict you'll accept the definition that you've been given or that you've lumped on yourself and, and so coming out of that i think one of the most glorious opportunities is is not everyone's going to give you a clean slate but you can give yourself a clean slate mm. and you can redefine yourself and so part of that is redefining is rediscovering and, and, and so it's about just getting out and doing some new things and if you can incorporate service into that and become part of your self-definition um i don't know there's there's something magical about it there's something healing about um about service mm. in any capacity in any capacity as long as it's doing something for somebody other than you mm. i love that Do you know the weird thing i find i find about that sort of thing is 
I, I, I berate myself for it because I, I want to do more things like that. I want to serve more. And when I do it, it's amazing. And I'm like, why don't I do this more? But always, 10 minutes before I'm about to do something, I'm like, fuck's sake, I can't be bothered to do this today. Got <laughs> <laughs> well, a homeless feed themselves today. <laughs> but there is an argument for that, you know. <laughs> and, then, yeah, and, then you do, and then you do it and you're like, ah, oh, yeah, I should remember why I do it. <laughs> um, there's a few things that um, I want to talk to you about. That they've been floating around in my head for a little while. And a few things you've said on on, on this call have uh, made me think about it a bit more. So I, I I think about going completely sober quite a lot because I, I feel like I'm the sort of person who moves the fences a lot. And um, one of the things I, I, I talk to myself about is I don't think I'll ever be as successful as I want to be if I carry on drinking. And, and I mean that in like in my career, definitely. But I mean, like, I don't think I'll be the best version of myself. I don't. There's too many times if I'm critical of myself where I'll like. Uh, I'm going to interrupt you. Go on. You, you might not be as successful as you want to be if you go completely sober either, because as an ambitious person, that's a lot of pressure to put on a drunk person, a sober person somewhere in between. Um, so I, I do have almost a little bit of an issue with the premise um, because what you're saying is if if I could quit drinking, then everything else would be perfect. Mm. That's and I point. promise you, I promise you that won't happen because my life is far from perfect. It's better. <laughs> it's a lot better. But I'm glad you're talking about it too because one of my questions what like, I've written down is can we have a successful life in your opinion as an addict or is it is it better when you're sober? Like, are you? Would you consider yourself more successful in life now you're sober? Yes, hundred um, percent. As in, sort of, what is success for you as a sober person now? As an addict, as a full-blown addict, I didn't really have a lot of goals. I was very into living day to day, and I'm, I'm going to make an assumption that for any type of addiction, if it's not a, a daily thing, it'll be from binge to binge, mm -hmm. whatever it is, um, that life gets segmented like into those things you're living for the next party. Mm -hmm. um, I just didn't have big hopes and dreams and goals. And, and I think it's probably moves in both directions because there's sort of enough intelligence that says there's no point in having some big hopes and dreams and goals because you're you're not going to give yourself to them. You're, you're too busy dedicating all your time to your addiction. Um, and so I, I think that it's when I was young, I was successful at everything I put my hand to because I, I always did things 100%. And so even like when I was um, finishing up high school, I was going to school full time. I was working full time. And I was partying full time and I got, I don't know, three hours of sleep a night and it was awesome. And I was young and there were no hangovers and I was successful at school and I made a bunch of money. I was successful at work and got promotions and I went out and made lots of friends and everything was good and everything was fine. Um, now it, it's just not that magical as it was when I was a, 
uh, mid to late teen, and life was just perfect. <laughs> so success doesn't necessarily have to be, it gets so often labeled as money, um, but it, it's just success in the sense that if there's something I want to do, I have the freedom now to do it, to pursue mm-hmm. it. And I have, and, and I can make the choices of, am I going to use what limited time I have to pursue this or not? Am, am I going to give all of my available time to my business and my family, or am I going to carve some of that out for some new dream? And I get choices. And if I choose to do something, I'm, I'm going to put my mind to it. I'm going to be successful at it. That's more of my nature, and I don't think it has anything to do per se with addiction. I'm not sure that you could take an addict or a non-addict, and not everyone has sort of uh, ambition and drive that enables them to commit to to achieving. And that would, I suppose, would be my definition of success: is mm-hmm. making a commitment to achieve something and then make a new goal. So, yes, it's it's much easier to be successful but I actually want things now. I was very, very successful as an alcoholic. <laughs> I was an well, amazing... Said 100%. You were like, I'm going to be a very I, good alcoholic. I was, I was the best <laughs> alcoholic then. I mean, <laughs> I gave it everything. There's <laughs> something I find is it's as much... Um, when I drink it's the things that you end up then not doing uh, and these things for me creep in and I think I hope a lot of people I think a lot of people well, I don't hope but I think a lot of people would be able to relate to this simple things like we talk about you know success isn't always money success um, for me as well would be having a successful weekend when the kids are here and what I mean by that is I could have a weekend when the kids are here and I could drink a couple of bottles of wine on a Friday night. That means I'm going to wake up later on on the Saturday morning. I'm going to be a bit groggy. I'm more likely to snap at them when they're chewing with their mouth open or whatever the, the you know kids are doing. Everything's a little bit more irritating. That puts them in a bit more of a on edge with me. Before you know it, it's Saturday night. Ooh, we've not had a great day. We've not really achieved much. We're not we've not gone out um, maybe because I couldn't be bothered woke up too late whatever then it's saturday night and well let's have let's have another bottle of wine and it, it can very quickly be like i'm fully functioning you know the kids have been here and we've had a reasonable time but then i think god why have i stayed sober for the whole weekend what would we have done hmm, i'd have been up earlier we might have gone out we might have done we might have fit a lot more in and we talk about time being such a precious resource um i, I lose so much of my life <laughs> because of alcohol either because i'm planning everything right when am i going to get this first first drink in me uh okay sunday's a write-off because i'm drinking all day saturday Uh, i mean i think that's um something that a lot of people will when you sit back and certainly when i sit back and think about it i go jesus i think there's a something i saw the other day and i'm going to brutally paraphrase it but someone was talking about you know let's say you you get to heaven you're at the gates and uh someone was saying like that their, their biggest fear is you know uh, and i'm not religious but god or whoever you believe in shows you 
this is what your life was supposed to be. These are all the things you could have achieved. And this is essentially where you got to. And the reason you didn't achieve all of these things is because you pissed it all away. You drank too much. You knew you drank too much and you didn't go for it and you didn't allow yourself to to do everything. You were supposed to do this, this and this. Um, I don't know. Can you relate to that in, in, in any way? Do you feel like you get a lot yeah. more done? Are, are, are there like more hours in the day being sober? Because I feel like there probably would be. I, I think that the decision to drink is a really short-sighted decision. So most people, when they're thinking, "Shall we have a drink? Shall we go out for? A, 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 shall we go out for a pint?" I mean, yeah, <laughs> sure, yeah, just one. No, yeah. um, <laughs> it's a short-sighted decision. Nobody sits and goes, "Okay." hold on, before I say yes, let me just think through the next three days. Yeah. <laughs> and the consequences of one pint, <laughs> right? You just, your, your brain does a spectacular job of just going, that'll be fine. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like fun. I like fun. Cool. Let's go. Boom. Done. Decision <laughs> made. So I think that it, it's really, there's a, a massive challenge when you say, you know, what's the trade-off? Because it's, you know, retrospect is always 2020. It's easy to see the next day and have, have the buyer's remorse. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly day. it. That's exactly it. But, <laughs> you know, how you can't really beat yourself up because if you go all the way back to before you started drinking and look at, at, at that Johnny, he wasn't, he wasn't weighing it up. He wasn't putting, he wasn't getting the scales out. So, um, the other side of the question is, yeah, I mean, the uh, I haven't had a hangover in almost nine years. <laughs> it just blow, blows me away. Just sometimes I think about that and like, oh my god, just how many days are wasted because of it, hanging, having a hangover, and even don't get me wrong, drink... I still love to waste time. Yeah, um, bones are excellent for that. Yeah. <laughs> Netflix is excellent for that. I was but, thinking that, you know, when you're sort of talking about addictions and wasting time, it, it there are addictions to all sorts. And I think addiction to social media is actually far more dangerous and wasteful than alcohol. Because I think, well, sorry, you know, obviously you've had your personal experience with that and it's been very dangerous for you, obviously. But I think what we don't realise is the silent dangers that we don't realise are killing our time. And that is mostly social media. Yeah, well, and chemically speaking, I mean, you're talking about really powerful brain chemistry involved in yeah. those things, and I think that it, I mean, you're really opening Pandora's box. But the dopamine this hit. Is the all thing this. I'm just going to say, you know, when you've just got, you know, you know, you've got to look at the epidemic that we've got, which is particularly rife in young women, when they're looking for the amount of um, likes they get on Instagram, you know, and and I'm my, my, my daughter's it. 13. Oh. I know all about yeah. that. This is the thing, isn't it? You know, and that's where it's all coming from now. It's another addiction. Yeah. We'll become superficials. I think it all comes down to a deeper meaning of what are we hiding from or what are we looking to hide from and what do we need to be looking at in ourselves? That's always going to be my burning question that even, you know, left over from listening to what you're you're saying is... is and there's certainly an, an, an incompleteness. Um, yes. And here's why... And this uh, just absolutely just smacked me like a freight train right now. Is this is why the spiritual element is so important? Mm. Is that, and, and this is my belief, 
Every human being has a God-sized hole inside of them. Mm. And God is your definition. You know, I'm yeah, not putting well, I'm a spiritual yeah, yeah. being, higher power, something, something. Um, it helps, I think, if, if, if this higher power is sort of an entity like I, I don't like the idea of just like a like oh i believe in the random energy of of all existence like yeah that, that there is energy everywhere but i mean i i think that there's got to be a spiritual being that's something that you can have some kind of a relationship with some kind of a connection with and i wouldn't ever expect anybody to, to find that on a light switch it, it takes time to develop these things but i really really believe that Humans have, they're not made to be solitary, mm. that we need each other. We need family, community, people need people. And I think that there's, that people need some kind of a spiritual connection and that there's, when, when there's some elements lacking in those things that you're going to then try to fill it up. And this is where addictions really just come in is I'm going to fill it up with drink i'm going to fill it up with drug i'm going to fill it up with likes on facebook or on mm. social media I'm gonna fill it up with porn i'm going to fill it up with anything that is going to we give me a little just want to feel something aren't we just want to feel good for a second feeling like just, something, yeah. a feeling of something that hopefully will be sustained but inevitably obviously like you say dopamine all of those chemical inductions into the body by a certain substance or experience is ultimately short-lived and we've all been trained to chase instant gratification mm. and that we should some for some reason we should have happiness when really well, what we yeah. should have is, is contentment realistic yeah hey, we yeah. don't need joy and bliss and happiness you need peace and contentment yeah. and and just gratitude for air i don't care if you have dirty air because dirty air is better than no air you know, I mean, it's just there's some simple things in life that we've all been told that aren't aren't important anymore. And we've been all told you should you should be happy all the time mm. and do whatever you have to do to go and find that happiness. Mm. Ah, come on. Life isn't about, not really. That's not that's not real. That isn't First thing real. People want to do when you're feeling miserable is go, cheer up. Actually, yeah. that's, like, that's not realistic. It's like, what is the harm in sitting with Turn that happiness? frown upside down? No, yeah. no, I don't want <laughs> to. With your unhappiness and learn to accept that sometimes we can't be happy all the time. We don't have to grab a drink or grab a substance or grab the dopamine rush that's going to come from any form of addiction. Yeah. So acceptance really is more important, isn't it? I like myself a lot better now, but I, I can't sit here and be like, now that I've uh, enjoyed almost a decade of sobriety that I, I, I think that I'm amazing. I mean, I, I still got flaws. I, they, they, the flaws never went away. Just because mm. I drank for decades doesn't mean I got better. <laughs> I, mean, mm. I just, all those problems that that horrible person I was at 15 is just buried under decades of drinking. The problems are still waiting for me. Mm -hmm. I just have the opportunity now to face reality and deal with things with a different solution other than numb. That's a really important point. As uh, something that I did a, a lot, I think a lot of people do that is you just drink 
to like almost postpone your problems, postpone dealing with things. Mm. And uh, as you say, you can drink for decades. They're still there at the end. I'm still excellent at procrastination. Gym, John, do you? Sorry? I find that with the gym. Yeah. I can be on a high when I'm at the gym during my workout and then I'll come back out and all of a sudden I'm like, oh, back to life again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no There's wonder I want to go to six days <laughs> Sharon, you've been very good. You've not, not been talking over us at all. <laughs> Have you got one more question? I'll let you have one more question. <laughs> I would actually, you, you touched on it earlier on, John, in, and I, I would like to put it in a different way. Russell, what would you say to somebody now who actually, well, it's kind of two parts, but I don't want to delay things too much. What would you say to the person who knows they've got an addiction and would like to stop? What, what advice would you give them? If they know that they've got a problem and they want it to be different, um, I think the very first thing they should do is they can do it out loud or they can do it with their thoughts in their head. And the more you can connect your mouth and your brain to your heart and really feel it, but to make a plea from your core out into not you, <laughs> the universe, heaven, wherever else, but plead in a spiritual sense that if the one that comes to mind is God, if you do exist, <laughs> I need you right now. Say that, whatever. You don't have to have any concept of what God is mm. or anything, but just that, that would be so powerful uh, to just, open yourself up to the potential that a spiritual thing could happen. And mm. I, I can almost promise that if you sincerely ask for something spiritual, you'll get it. I, I don't, I can't think of anybody who has literally desperately pled for spiritual help and not got, I, I just, I would be amazed to meet that person. Um, and so that would be the, the number one thing. The, the, the second thing would be then um, find somebody to, to hold you accountable. Mm -hmm. um, so it's hard to make that be a family member because they'll judge you. Um, it's hard to make that be a, a coworker because then you don't know if you can trust them and if your dirt's gonna get out to work. And so, mm -hmm. I, I, you know, if you got a call, professional help, talk to your doctor, talk to, to, to some, if you already are religious, were raised that way, go to your religious place, uh, church, temple, mosque, whatever, find, find somebody that you, uh, a friend, the, the tough thing with the friends is the friends are likely to be engaged in the same addictions that you are. Mm -hmm. But I mean, just find somebody that you can tell that you're struggling and that will just check in on you, make sure you're okay, hold you accountable. If you say you want to do something, have them call you up on your bullshit if you if you don't. Because um, there's help out there. There's people that want to help. There's, there's, you know, there's, there's things that I could, I mean, maybe you might be able to help our listeners find things that are like NHS guided, but there's, 
there's going to be government programs, there's going to be private programs, there's religious programs, there's help out there all over the place. Um, and spiritual spirituality has a funny way of doing the whole seven degrees of Kevin Bacon thing is that once you open yourself up to somebody else, you don't know who they know, who they know that all of a sudden the right person that you have been needing comes into your life. Because the other side of the spiritual equation is what happened to me, is that I was desperate. My, my soul, my depths were crying out for help, even though my brain didn't know it. And so the help I received was in a big old heap of hurt and trouble. Um, when I look back at that experience, I'm grateful for it because I might still be wallowing in my filth had it not been for that. Um, but if somebody can get that through the love and kindness of other people, I mean, it's a, it's a much more comfortable way to, to get some help as opposed to desperate rock mm -hmm. bottom, total brokenness. So you can't do it alone though. Nope. Not, I don't know a single person. I don't know a single addict that's ever done it alone and sits mm -hmm. and brags about how powerful their will is and, haven't, haven't, haven't met that person. So try and find someone that they can share their story with, which is not easy, is it? But, you know, and obviously we know and we acknowledge that in this country that young men um, will often feel very, very alone, but it's really important that they try and try and put the, the thoughts of feeling being judged and shame aside and to actually speak with someone. I would put this out there for anybody that's listening to this that if you need somebody to talk to, you can direct message me on any of my socials in a private way and I will respond to you and we can then keep that dialogue anonymous in a social uh, direct message if, if you want. I'll give you a phone number, we can talk, we can do this. I, I would be willing to talk to anybody that and sometimes that's the easiest part is to have an anonymous person because there's no judgment there's no guilt you can tell me anything it's not going to get back to you or your family or your work or whatever so uh, i mean that's an open offer to anybody listening to this right now fantastic uh, thank you so much and i can definitely vouch for russell when he says he's going to do something he'll do it <laughs> amazing um no, I think I think that's uh, that's brilliant. I think that's a, a perfect place to to wrap up. Mm. Sharon, how good has this been? <laughs> Bloody amazing! <laughs> Super I, don't know, I, don't, I don't know how we're going to follow this, <laughs> but Russell, thank you so much. Uh, this has been amazing. Thank you for sharing, and and yeah, thank you for those insights. I think it's going to help a lot of people. Thank you so much for having me on, and uh, mm. if it helps one person, honestly, if it helps one person, it was totally worth it. Your story's already, helped me today, I have to yeah, say. It's, very it's, inspiring. Helped, it's helped me, so that's already that's already two people you've helped. So uh, mm. amazing. For people that want to follow you and, and maybe get in touch, where can we find you? Social um, media? Social media is uh, typically is the number four followed by Flawless Finish. So at for Flawless Finish on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, my Facebook's slightly different. It's Flawless Finish UK. Um, or you can contact me through my website, which is fourflawlessfinish.com. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Guys, thank you for this. Thank you, Russell. It's been thank absolutely you. brilliant. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Very thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, everybody, for thank listening. You.
and we'll see you all soon. Cheers, see guys. You all soon.